Welcome to the Faith Women Podcast. We're a community of women at Faith Baptist Church in Youngsville, North Carolina, that desires to honor the Word of God, to support our church, and to encourage each other as we know, grow, serve, and go. Through these episodes, we'll be introducing you to our ministry team, sharing truth from God's Word, and challenging you to grow in your love for the Lord and those He's called you to serve. We're so glad you've joined us. Let's dive in. Okay, do you like me? ever feel like you are being swept away by a tidal wave of thoughts? Thoughts such as, if God were really good, he would not have allowed your father to leave? This situation is just too big for God. No one is going to love you because of your past. There must be something wrong with you. You're ugly, overweight. You will never amount to anything. He's going to leave you just like your father did. Someone else could do a much better job in this position than you. You're not equipped for this ministry. You don't know enough. You don't have it all together. So you must not be called and gifted. Does your thought life sound at all like mine? My friend Dana and I call this the spin and sin. What is that, you may ask? Well, I might be dating myself a little bit here, but um, you'll see a picture on the screen of a toy called a sit and spin. So you could sit on this toy and spin around until you could basically make yourself sick. Um, And so this is what happens to me when I start thinking even one of the thoughts that I just mentioned. I start to spin in this downward cycle, and before I know it, I'm uh, making myself sick all because I'm listening to and believing lies. Lies that, as my mom likes to remind me, are straight from the pit of hell. When Jesus saved me, I was coming out of a 12-year rebellious lifestyle. I had divorced my old life and to be in a relationship with Jesus, but this meant that I no longer had friends and that life as I had known it for the previous 27 years was over. I was struggling with depression, anxiety, grief, and really just starting to work through a lot of the pain and things from my past. Through counseling, I began to recognize lies that I believed about God, myself, my circumstances, and I learned how to walk in the truth of God's word by applying scripture to every thought that I had and allowing God's word to take my thoughts captive. I learned how to replace lies with truth And for the first time in my life, I experienced freedom, fruitfulness, peace, and a deep and abundant relationship with Jesus. Ladies, the Bible repeatedly calls us as Christians to diligently guard our thoughts. But how do we do that, and what are we supposed to fill our minds with? Well, the idea for this topic tonight comes from 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. These are verses that most of us have probably heard before and read. But I want us to take, uh, I want us to zoom out tonight and read them in their context and see what Paul is actually talking about here. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Now I, Paul, myself, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble among you in person, but bold toward you when absent, I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are behaving according to the flesh. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. 
since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. So Paul's authority as an apostle is being questioned um, in the book, in the letter of uh, 2 Corinthians that we have um, by some people in the church called Judaizers. Specifically, these people were accusing Paul of having a ministry that was fleshly or carnal. His motives, his character, and his authority to instruct the church at Corinth about how they were to conduct themselves was, as a body was being questioned. And he was being accused of doing things in his own strength and his own abilities. So in verses 3 through 6, Paul is actually defending his ministry and says that through his ministry, he's actually waging war. The weapons that he uses are powerful through God, to demolish strongholds, arguments, and ideas that come against the knowledge of God. And as he, through his ministry, is sharing the gospel with others, um, he's metaphorically taking the thoughts captive of other people and making them obey Christ. So based on the context of the passage, I think that the New Living Translation is actually a little more accurate. Um, it says... We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. So although this passage is specifically referring to a, an issue at Corinth where Paul's um, authority is being questioned, I think that we can um, see a few universal biblical truths that are, that are in this passage, but also all throughout scripture that we can apply into our lives. The first of those is that we are in a war. <clears throat> we do not fight as the world fights. Our weapons are spiritual through God's power, not our own, God's power, we can destroy strongholds. Our thoughts are to be in submission to Jesus. And Jesus is our commanding officer and Lord. There's two areas in which strongholds must be destroyed. So in this uh, context here, Paul is talking about in the lives of unbelievers through the pro proclamation of the gospel but then also in many other places throughout scripture, um, we learn we, we can um, have strongholds in our own lives. So as individuals, within the context of community, um, strongholds need to be destroyed. So the weapons that we have to fight with are the gospel, that God created the world perfectly, but man and woman chose to rebel and go their own way that their actions have now affected every human being, and we have all sinned against God, and there's nothing that we can do to fix our own problems. That Jesus, God's perfect son, came to earth to live the life that we could never live and die the death that we deserve to die. That through belief in his death, burial, 
and resurrection, we are granted God's righteousness, and we live now waiting Jesus' return, where he will dwell with his people forever. The lost will perish, and he will restore all creation to its pre-sin design. And then also, in Ephesians 6, 11 through 18, Paul tells us that some additional weapons that we have are prayer, the word, and then spiritual armor. So we saw back in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 10 that our passage, of our passage, that our weapons are spiritual. And Paul notes three activities here that our weapons carry out. First, they demolish strongholds. Second, they demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised against the knowledge of God. And third, they take every thought captive. So by now, I'm sure you're asking the question, well, what exactly is a stronghold? Well, good question. So a stronghold was a massive structure of defensive walls around a city to protect it from enemy attacks. The city of Jerusalem was actually considered a stronghold in ancient times. And you can see from the picture on the screen that there's a massive wall around the city. So they had these towers that they erected on the corners and at other places along the wall um, that were obvious points of attack, and they look like uh, rows of teeth that have gaps in them. These protective towers were placed at certain intervals along the wall uh, to give the city's archers kind of a good vantage point as they would um, shoot and turn people away from an attack. You can't really tell from this particular picture, but the walls were massive. So one website says that the, the height was around 39 feet, and the, the width was about 8 feet wide. So that is a massive wall. And the city usually had a person who was called a watchman who would, was stationed at the top of the wall who would call out whenever there was danger uh, coming towards the city. Fortified cities were most often overcome by a prolonged siege from an enemy army. The enemy would station their forces outside the wall so nothing would get in or out of the fortress. In 2 Samuel 5, uh, verses 6 through 9, the Jebusites mocked King David, saying he would never get into the stronghold of Jerusalem. But David captured it, and we know that he made it um, actually the cap his capital. But strongholds are not just physical places like we see in the picture of Jerusalem. We can also erect spiritual strongholds in our minds. In her book, Praying God's Word, author and Bible teacher Beth Moore gives us a definition of a spiritual stronghold. And this uh, quote will come up on the screen because it's pretty long as well. A stronghold is an argument or pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. The wording in the King James Version draws a clearer image of a stronghold. Every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. A stronghold is anything that exalts itself in our minds, pretending to be bigger or more powerful than our God. It steals much of our focus and causes us to feel overpowered, controlled, mastered. Whether the stronghold is an addiction unforgiveness toward a person who has hurt us, 
or despair over a loss, it is something that consumes so much of our emotional and mental energy that abundant life is strangled, our callings remain largely unfulfilled, and our believing lives are virtually ineffective. Needless to say, these are the enemy's precise goals. So some other examples of spiritual strongholds might be fear, lust, insecurity. I think she mentions unforgiveness, pride, anger, control, substance abuse, shopping or materialism. Basically anything that begins to captivate our minds and then our actions. So how do we become captive to these strongholds? Well, first, we listen to the lies of the enemy. Now, every lie has a grain of truth that is in it, but it's always a counterfeit. We can become captive through sin, whether it's our own sin or the sin of others against us. Through protective measures that maybe we've, um, when we've been hurt or we've been through suffering or just by being isolated from community. So why, why does this even matter? Well, I think not only do we have strongholds that are wrecked due to the things that we just mentioned, but also the lies of our culture can erect strongholds in our minds. So as Paul mentions in Colossians 2, 8, we can become captive through philosophies and the empty deceit of the world. So a few lies in our culture that I think we could easily um, allow to become strongholds in our mind if we're not careful is um, one of them, I think this is really prevalent today, especially for women, the slogan, my body, my choice. So there's a grain of truth in that. You know, we, we do have the authority over our bodies to, to say no if somebody is going to harm us or do something that... Um, is against our will towards us, but we don't have the authority when it comes to whether or not we choose life for an unborn child. Um, the 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20 says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. So uh, it's not really our body. Our body belongs to God. And another one I think is very prevalent in our culture today is just follow your heart. That is a lie. The heart in Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is just more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? If we follow our hearts, ladies, I can assure you that we will always be led astray. But if we if our hearts have been submitted to Jesus and we follow Jesus and allow him to teach us how to walk by his spirit, we can experience abundant life in Christ. So don't be taken captive by the lies of the world. So how do we take our thoughts captive? Well, I think there's three truths that we really have to understand before we can talk through how we take our thoughts captive. The first thing is that we must know our God. We have to understand that we cannot take our thoughts captive on our own. This isn't something that we just are like, hey, I'm going to pull my bootstraps up and I'm just going to walk around and take my thoughts captive today. We cannot do this without the Spirit of God dwelling in us and His power 
in us, allowing uh, his word to transform our minds. We also have to know our enemy. So we have to know that we're in a war and we have an enemy. That he's cunning and crafty. And he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is not a friend. That lying is his nature, and he is the father of lies. His primary goal is deception, and he likes to disguise his suggestions as our thoughts and ideas. Dealing with the enemy is not a power encounter, but a truth encounter. The word of God alone is living and active. It's eternal, unshakable, enduring, and forever settled in heaven, so when we rebuttal Satan's lies with truth, he doesn't have a leg to stand on. And third, we must know our Bible. We, have to, we take our thoughts captive by saturating our life with God's truth and taking a step of faith by walking in that truth, regardless of whether we feel like it's true or not. The scriptures are true. The more we learn truth and put our energy into knowing what the Bible says, the easier it will become for us to recognize the lies and take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. John 8:32 says that when we know the truth, the truth will set us free. So the Bible is our primary text for taking our thoughts captive. And there are many benefits to being in Scripture in a cons on a consistent basis. Uh, Psalm 19 lists several of them for us. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey dripping from the honeycomb. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says we will be transformed as we renew our minds with Scripture. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, we will learn to set our minds on the things that are above, not things that are on the earth. And Psalm 1, 1 through 3, as we meditate on scripture, it brings happiness, stability, and fruitfulness into our lives. There's many more benefits of scripture, but those were just a few. Okay, so neglecting to take our thoughts captive leads us into sin. So I want to look quickly at two examples of people who were in bondage to sin for not taking their thoughts captive. And the first one, I'm sure we can all, um, we all, it's no surprise that I'm going to go here, but the first one would be Eve. So we'll look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. And I'm going to read it and just point out a few things um, along the way. Okay, so now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God says you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let me just read uh, through verse 13, actually. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. She also took some of its fruit and ate it. She gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God in the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So Eve's fatal mistake is that she engages with, in conversation with the enemy. So first rule of thumb, don't engage in conversation with the enemy, ever. And then in verse um, 4, no, I'm sorry, uh, verse 2, uh, got the, uh, sorry, verse 1. Satan says, did God really say? So he calls into question God's word. And sometimes when I read scripture, I try to like think about the tone of voice that's being, um, being spoken. And whenever I read this, I kind of have, I kind of get this thought of like, there's kind of this like attitude. Satan's like, did God really just say that to you? Like, oh no, he did not say you cannot eat of the tree of the garden. And so he, Satan wants Eve to, to begin to believe that God is withholding something from her. So when she responds to him, she actually adds to what God, the command that God has given them. In John, not John, sorry. In Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17, God places Adam in the garden and commands him. And the Lord God says, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So as you can see, she adds a little bit to what God has actually said. And then we also see in verse 13 that... Um, Satan's goal was to deceive her, and he actually um, accomplished that goal. So let's look at a, another example. If we go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 17, again, this is probably a pretty familiar story to most of us. Uh, King David with Bathsheba. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. 
So David sent someone to inquire about her, and she said, Isn't this and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hethite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and, the, Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a, and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David Uriah didn't go home, David questioned Uriah. Haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in an open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hethite also died. So here we see that David's fatal mistake is that he is in a place he shouldn't be. He's the king, yet when, when all of the uh, kings march out to war, David decides to stay in Jerusalem. He's also on the roof at night, never a good place to be. We see him start to dwell on his thoughts. He sees this beautiful woman, then he sends someone to get her. And he completely disregards the identity of Bathsheba. The passage specifically says she was a daughter of Eliam and she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And he just disregards that she belongs to another, two other men, really, a, a, a wife and a, a father. He involves others in his sin, and then he murders an innocent man. So do you see the downward spiral of sin that occurs in both examples? Ladies, sin will always take us further than we ever wanted to go. I do not believe that Eve wanted to cause every human after her to be filled with sin, nor do I believe that David wanted to murder an innocent man. They were both captive to their sin, and their actions affected others. So are you starting to see the importance of taking our thoughts captive? So how do we do this? Well, I want to teach you a process that I was taught. It's the best approach that I have seen related to how to take your thoughts captive, and it really works. It comes from Beth Moore's Bible study, Breaking Free. So the first step, and you guys should have pictures of these in your notes, is to recognize the captor. 
So this drawing illustrates the imprisoned believer held captive by controlling thoughts. The cross shows that she knows Christ, but there is something that has grown between her and her Lord. That something has grown so large, in fact, that it has become the captor and the believer has become the prisoner and she is now bowing down to her captor. Many of our captors begin as thoughts that we meditate and stew upon until it becomes so overpowering that it captures us. So step two, we are to stand in agreement with God. In this step, the believer is still imprisoned, but she is now standing. As you can see, her thoughts are still between her and God, but she has begun the challenging work of tearing down a stronghold. At this point, we must agree with God that we are captive. We must repent of our participation in believing the lies that have taken us captive and the actual sins that we have lived out. As I mentioned earlier, not every object of our imagination is sin. The sin itself may be the ways that we have responded to a particular situation or the exaltation of it in our minds. So we need to begin praying and asking the Lord to reveal the specific lies that we've believed. I think Isaiah 44.20 is a good scripture to pray, um, asking the Lord um, to reveal those lies. It says, He feeds on ashes. His deceived mind has led him astray, and he cannot rescue himself or say, Isn't there a lie in my right hand? Step three, we start to tear down the lies. In this drawing, you can see that the prison cell door is now open. The believer is still held captive, but she's on her way out of the prison cell. Her eyes are open to the lies that she's believed, and she's beginning to tear them down. In this step, we must refuse to believe the lies and live out of them anymore. You now begin to take your thoughts captive as you expose the lies that are fueling your stronghold. Deception is the glue that holds a stronghold together. And by the time a stronghold exists, in our, exists our minds are covered with lies. Some of the lies that I believed related to my father's abandonment as a young child were that God is just like your father. God didn't protect your family, so you have to. Every man will leave you, and if you don't do a good job, you'll be replaced. I once read a Girlfriends in God devotional that described taking thoughts captive as being like the cow roping event in a rodeo. Now, you guys might think this is kind of weird, like, why are we talking about cow roping? But I grew up in a very small country town, and so every spring there was a big rodeo, and everybody enjoyed the cow roping event. So if you don't know what cow calf roping is. It is a race between cowboys to see who is the fastest to rope the calf, tie his legs, and pin him down to the ground. So let's watch this clip, quick video clip. And I, don't, I won't know when it's over, so just thumb, give me a thumbs up, I guess. I can't see it. <laughs> it's over? Okay. All right, so like the cowboy in the video, we want to lasso our thoughts, tie them up, and put them on the ground. And the faster that we do this, 
the better. We'll have to be very vigilant about what we're thinking about throughout the day. And as soon as you catch yourself meditating on lies, you'll have to refuse them. I think that Philippians 4.8 is a really helpful filter for us to determine whether we need to lasso a thought or not. It says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is morally excellent, and whatever is worthy of praise. So if your thought and my thought cannot fit into one of those categories, it immediately gets lassoed and thrown to the ground. So when I was learning this process, I had a one-hour commute each way to work, so I had a lot of time to think. Since I was by myself, I could say out loud when I would have certain thoughts, that's a lie and I'm no longer believing that. Now, I'm not suggesting that you talk out loud to yourself around others, or people might think you're a lunatic, but you can certainly say these things to yourself when you catch yourself uh, meditating on those lies again. Just, you can say, like, stop, I'm not, that's a lie, I, I refuse to believe that anymore. All right, so the next step is to put up the truth, and this is the really crucial part. In the next drawing, we see that something critical has occurred. The believer is no longer imprisoned, but instead her thoughts are, and nothing stands between she and her Lord. She's very close to controlling her thoughts. But as Paul explains in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, it is not enough for us to just stop at step 3 with pulling down the lies. We, we must now put on the truth, and this is the only way out of a stronghold. In this step... We must re-wallpaper the walls of our minds with the truth. Our minds never stay bare. You do not tear down a stronghold by thinking positively or by affirming ourself. You pull them down by meditating on the truth of the Bible. You must meditate on and memorize scripture that relates to your stronghold. God's character and actions that are related to the lie, the gospel, and your identity in Christ. And as you begin to meditate on truth, your thoughts are now becoming captive to God's word. But you'll have to continue to saturate your mind with truth at all times so that you'll begin to think like God does about your situation or the person that you've been captive to. I first learned how to take my thoughts captive in 2009 when I got saved. There were so many lies that I believed about God, myself, and my circumstances. And I was seeing my pastor for counseling, and one of my homework assignments was to write out verses about my identity in Christ. As I began to do this, I, I realized that through the process of writing scripture, I was actually meditating on what the passage said, and that it, it slowed my mind down from all these anxious thoughts that I was having. At the same time, I was attending a Bible study where we were working through the book by Nancy Lee DeMoss called Lies Women Believe, and I was beginning to understand the importance of replacing lies with the truth of God's word. So I began to write out on index cards, not just every verse about my identity in Christ, but literally every verse that stood out to me as I read the Bible. And on my way to work every day, I took those cards with me, and I would read them out loud as I was driving down the road. 
When Jesus saved me, I was coming out of a 12-year rebellion where I had done a lot of things that I regretted, and I, had, and I believed that I had somehow messed up God's plan for my life. But I remember vividly one day driving down the road, reading Ephesians 2.10. And the particular passage that I was, that day, um, I had written from the New Living Translation on my card. It says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And in that moment, as I read that, it was like the Lord just dropped this like truth bomb that went off in my heart and opened up my eyes to see that in Christ, I had been remade. So I could do what God had planned for me all along. My stupid choices, my past failures, and my sin did not thwart God's plan for my life. His plan remains the same but he had now given me another chance in Christ to fulfill it. And it was a life-changing moment for me to recognize those lies and to, to have the truth be applied in that moment uh, to, those, to what I was struggling with. So the way that we put up truth is to search for scriptures that apply to our stronghold. Not only what we're to put off, but also the put-on passages. I would suggest that you write them on index cards and take them with you wherever you go and meditate them at all times throughout your day. For instance, when I was breaking free from my stronghold related to my father's abandonment, some of the scriptures that I memorized were John 15, 6. And these are just my paraphrases of them, but I had been personally chosen by God. Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6, I will trust in the Lord's unfailing love because he's good to me. And then Psalm 27, 10 and Isaiah 49, 15, even if my parents forsake me, the Lord receives me and will never forget me. There were many, many more. I have a, if you've ever been in my car with me, you will see the stack. It's about this thick. It's still in there. Um, and I, at times, go back through them. So step five, we bow our thoughts to the truth. In this drawing, you see that the believer now has victory over her thoughts. She has learned how to re-wallpaper her mind with the truth, and she has now taken her thoughts captive and made them bow down to the truth. So this is the result of steps one, four, one through four. But just because she's now free, she does not have the freedom to stop bowing her thoughts to the truth. We must continue to take our thoughts captive every single day or the enemy will bring a new stronghold into our lives. We must be vigilant to guard what we allow ourselves to hear or think about. And each day we must fill our minds with God's word and continue the practice of bowing our thoughts to the truth if we want to actually stay free. So now I want to show you an example of someone in Scripture who I think did take their thoughts captive. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And it's uh, King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now, uh, Jehoshaphat's story actually starts about four chapters earlier, but we can't read all that. So I'm just going to give a quick kind of summary of the events that happened leading up to uh, chapter 20 here. 
So Jehoshaphat was the son of King Asa. After King Asa dies, he becomes king in Judah. He was a good king who walked in obedience to the Lord. And under his rule, Judah had a very strong military, and Jehoshaphat was very rich. Through marriage, he made an alliance with King Ahab of Israel, and after seven year, several years, he goes to visit King Ahab. Now King Ahab tries to persuade King Jehoshaphat to go to war with him against Ramoth-Gilead. Jehoshaphat wants to inquire of the Lord before they enter the battle, but King Ahab is wicked and does not want to hear what the Lord has to say. They, he consults a few prophets, and they end up going into the battle, and King Ahab is killed. Jehoshaphat is then rebuked by a prophet for his involvement in the war, and he repents and leads Judah through a time of reform where they turn back to the true worship of Yahweh. So this brings us to chapter 20, uh, which is where I want to focus on. So after this, the Moabites and Ammonites, together with some of the Minuites, came to fight against Jehoshaphat. People came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast number from beyond the Dead Sea and Edom has come to fight against you. They are already in Hazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he resolved to seek the Lord. Then he proclaimed a fast for all Judah, who gathered to seek the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem and in the Lord's temple before the new courtyard. He said, Lord God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, and no one can stand against you. So here we see Jehoshaphat focus on God's character. He calls him Lord, which is the covenant name for God. He says, God of our ancestors. So he's, he's referring back to Yahweh being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, you're the God who is in heaven, and you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can stand against you. So he, call, he calls upon God's sovereignty, And then he says, Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? So here we see he focuses on what God has done. So he, he reminds God and himself and the people that this was the land that God had, dro had um, drove, drove the inhabitants out of. So he is referring back to the conquest with Joshua of the land. And then he says, and you gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. So he's also recalling back the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, that the land would be the people of Israel's. It says, they have lived in the land and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name and have said, if disaster comes on us, sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple and before you, for your name is in this temple. We will cry out to you because of our distress, and you will hear and deliver. Now here are the Ammonites, Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. You did not let Israel invade them when Israel came out of the land of Egypt. 
but Israel turned away from them and did not destroy them. Look how they repay us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you gave us as an inheritance. So in in verses 10 and 11, we see Jehoshaphat, in complete honesty, pour out his heart to the Lord. He tells the Lord what they're thinking, the reality of the situation, and how they're feeling about it. Verse 12, he says, Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. So he admits their desperation and their complete dependence on God to move on their behalf. Verse 13. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their dependents, their wives, and their children. In the middle of the congregation, the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehazel, son of Zechariah, son of Beninah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite from Asaph's descendants. And he said, Listen carefully, all Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast number, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. You will see them coming up from the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley facing the wilderness of Jeril. You do not have to fight this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. He is with you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Then Jehoshaphat knelt low with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord to worship him. So we see Jehoshaphat and the people bow in submission to the Lord's words. Then the Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel, shouting loudly. In the morning they got up early and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. As they were about to go out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe in his prophets, and you will succeed. Then he consulted with the people and appointed some to sing for the Lord and some to praise the splendor of his holiness. When they went out in front of the armed forces, they kept singing, Give thanks to the Lord, for his faithful love endures forever. So the people offer praise to the Lord, and they actually sing the scripture to the Lord. So they're singing Give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love endures forever. That's a quote from Psalm 118 and Psalm 136 that they're singing back to the Lord. The moment they began their shouts and praises, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir who came to fight against Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites turned against the inhabitants of Mount Seir and completely annihilated them. When they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped destroy each other. So we see the Lord deliver the people of Judah from their enemies who were attacking them. When Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked for the large army, but there were only corpses lying on the ground. Nobody had escaped. Then Jehoshaphat and his people went to gather the plunder. 
they found among them an abundance of goods on the bodies and valuable items. So they stripped them until nobody could carry any more. They were gathering plunder for three days because there was so much. They assembled in the valley of Baraka on the fourth day, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, that place is still called the valley of Baraka today. And then all the men of Judah and Jerusalem turned back with Jehoshaphat, their leader, returning joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord enabled them to rejoice over their enemies. So they came into Jerusalem to the Lord's temple with harps, lyres, and trumpets. So the people have an abundance of plunder. They're filled with joy and rejoicing, and they have realized that the Lord is their refuge and their deliverer. Now terror, the terror of God was on all the kingdoms of the land when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. Then Jehoshaphat's kingdom was quiet, for his God gave him rest on every side. And lastly, we see that the kingdom of Judah experiences peace. So taking every thought captive means we evaluate every thought against what the truth is. Not taking our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ allows Satan to influence our lives in a negative direction. So we need to ask God to make us aware of our thoughts and our words and bring them to him and ask him to help evaluate whether that is thought is truthful or not. When you start to see unhealthy patterns in your thinking and actions, it's a good indication that you may have a stronghold. Taking thoughts captive captive is not easy or a one-time event. It is a process. It is a daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes minute-by-minute process in which we continually surrender our thoughts to obey what the scripture says. Some days we will fall, but we must get back up and start again. Ladies, this is challenging work. It's exhausting at times to be continually vigilant over what we're thinking about, but it is so worth our time and energy, and it is pleasing to God. But we also have to involve others in the process with us. We need godly friends who will tell us that our, lies, our thoughts are lies that are straight from the pit of hell and remind us of the truth. We need the community of believers to enter into the battle with us, to pray for us, to encourage us when we fail, and to rejoice with us in times of victory. Honestly, lately I have not been doing the necessary work of letting the scriptures take my thoughts captive. I know how intentional I must be with this, and sometimes I just want to mentally coast because I'm tired and I don't have the mental space and energy to constantly guard my thoughts. My mind is on overload, and I just really don't want to think about anything. But the truth is that our minds are never neutral. We don't just not think about something. Maybe men can do that. Maybe they can go into the nothing box. But I don't know any woman who can do that. So we must continually be on guard for what we are allowing ourselves to dwell upon. And even as I worked on this message for tonight, I battled with lies of insecurity, unbelief, fear, anxiety, comparison, and inferiority, just to name a few of them. I kept thinking it would just be a whole lot easier to cancel the whole event so I wouldn't have to uh, deal with these lies and these fears that had paralyzed me in the preparation process. 
but I was reminded by a good friend that I needed to put my own words into practice and to take my thoughts captive and remind myself of the truth. I've been reminded of my need to make meditating on scripture a priority in my life again and of the reward of doing the difficult work that this takes and growing deeper in my relationship with Jesus through it. So what are the rewards of taking our thoughts captive? I think there's a few. The first is peace. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says that as we, this is my paraphrase, but as we bring our thoughts to Christ, he stands guard like the watchman on the wall that, we meant, that I meant, talked about earlier, on the walls of our mind so that no enemy can get through. Isaiah 26, 3 says, You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. Ladies, this is a conditional promise that's based on our trust in God and our choice to take our thoughts captive. So we have a responsibility to choose the truth and commit ourselves to live accordingly. Our God is not a slave driver. He's not a dictator who forces our thoughts into submission to him. He's a loving father who gives us the free will whether to trust him and believe him or not and bow our thoughts to his word. Another reward is abundant life. John 10.10 talks about this. Spiritual growth and maturity in John 15.5-8. But most importantly, we find refuge in an impenetrable stronghold, God himself, who cares deeply for us, and this is the safest place that I think we could ever be. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are a stronghold for us, a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place of peace, God, from the the crazy world that we live in. Father, from the crazy thoughts that we think, God, I pray that that you would teach us. Um, Lord, teach me again to, to put this process into place in our lives, to take our thoughts captive, God, to do the hard, necessary work of bowing our thoughts to the truth of your word about who you say you are, who you say that we are in Christ, who you say we are without you, God, and what you have done and will do on our behalf. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to stand in agreement with you and to to, um, repent of the lies that we believe. I pray that you would open our eyes to the, th- to the lies, God, that, that we would see them and we would refuse to believe them, and that starting today, God, you would um, just begin a new work in our hearts, a work of um, freedom and um, drawing us nearer to you through the power of your spirit that dwells within us, uh, God, and, and you, we will give you all the glory and the praise for that. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Faith Women Podcast. We hope you were both encouraged and challenged by what you heard today. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you won't miss an episode. If you're in our area, we'd love to have you join us at Faith Baptist Church in Youngsville on a Sunday or at any of our special events. You can learn more about our ministry online at faithnc.org slash women. See you next month.